0: The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. So two weeks ago, uh, we celebrated the most significant event in the history of the world. And if you happen to be here with us on Easter weekend, um, then you heard me say something that maybe kind of caught you off guard. Uh, Because I told you that the story of Easter really is not a religious story, which in fact is true. Um, Because Easter, right, on Easter we don't celebrate a teacher, we don't celebrate a teaching, uh, we don't celebrate a philosophy, and we certainly don't celebrate a religion. Instead, on, on Easter we actually celebrate an event that happened. And so because of that, Easter is that thing that takes Christianity out of the category of religion, um, because Easter is the reminder to all of us who are followers of Jesus that what it is that we believe, it isn't just simply based on a system of belief, right? It's not simply based on ideology, but instead what we believe as followers of Jesus is actually based on on history. And yet at the same time, chances are, maybe for many of you, maybe as you were growing up, you experienced what I experienced when I was in college, which where I, I was told that, you know, there, it's fine for you to, you know, follow God and, and figure out who God is, because there's all kinds of different ways to discover God, and there's all kinds of paths that lead to God, and they kind of all end up leading to the same place, so it doesn't really matter which path that you choose. But, but at the same time, I was told, you know, you should probably be a little bit skeptical about the one that's known as Christianity, because, you know, that path is actually based on a book that cannot be trusted, Because this book is so filled with errors, it's so filled with mistakes, it's so filled with contradictions, it's so filled with the supernatural that what it says can't possibly be true. It's fine if you want to read it for personal motivation, it's fine if you want to read it for personal inspiration, but beyond those things, there's really not anything useful that this book really can provide for you, and it certainly isn't anything that you want to base your faith on. Or your trust in and yet somehow at the same time just two weeks ago more than two billion of us more than a third of the world's population we actually gathered together to worship and to celebrate the truths that are found in this book that that more than 2,000 years ago God actually sent his son Jesus into this world for one very specific purpose to die on a cross for our sin and even though he did in fact die he did not stay dead because after three days, God actually raised him back to life that, as proof that he really was who he claimed to be. And based on the promises that Jesus has made to every single one of us that are recorded in this book, we believe that for those of us who, who believe that Jesus really did die and he, who really did rise again, we believe that that was the payment for and the proof that our sins are in fact forgiven and we will end up spending eternity in heaven with Him. So how exactly is that? How exactly is that, that that so many of us believe that to be true? How how exactly is it that so many of us actually read this book, we actually believe what it says, if this book is so easily discredited? I mean, are there really just that many of us out there who who are... who are willing to intellectually kind of lie to ourselves and say, I, I don't really I don't care if it's true, I don't know if it's true, it doesn't matter if it's true, I just need something to believe in other than the world around me. Is I just need something other than what I see to believe? I mean, is that really all that there is, you know, to, to this and to all this? For the next several weeks, we're gonna be talking about the evidence. The real evidence that we have for what it is that we believe about Jesus, what we believe about his resurrection, and the reliability of everything that we read together each week as we open up the pages of this book. Now, today, as we kind of begin um, to weigh this evidence together, as we begin to talk, we're going to talk very specifically today, actually, about four of the books that we find within this book. We're going to talk specifically uh, about what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to talk about um, these books and why it is that these books are, in fact, reliable records of actual things, actual events, and actual conversations that happened In history. And the argument that we're going to make together, not only today, but over the next several weeks, the argument that we're going to build is going to kind of go like this, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, in fact, reliable records of actual events and conversations that took place. And because of that, what it is that they have to say about Jesus is true. And because what these books say about Jesus is true, then that means that Jesus really is the Son of God, based on the miracles that he has performed, including, most importantly, his own personal resurrection. And if what it is that Jesus says is true, because of what these books say is true, then Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, and that means that what Jesus says to us about God and also the rest of this book is also true. So today, as we begin this conversation, as we begin kind of looking at the evidence today, and as we continue in our series, there's a couple things that we have to keep in mind as we begin to weigh the evidence. The first is that you can't use, we can't use, what you and I might commonly think of as science or the scientific method to somehow go about and prove history, right? You you can't, that's not how, how science works. That's actually why, in a court of law, you don't really prove anything, Instead, in a court of law, what you do is you present evidence to a jury, and a jury makes a decision based on the evidence that's provided. So whenever we talk about the past, we always have to ask the question, what does the evidence point to, or where does the evidence lead? For example, let's say um, that tomorrow morning, um, you go to work, and you're telling one of your coworkers, hey, you'll never guess what I did this past weekend, even though it was raining and icy and all crazy. I actually went to church at Faith in Troy this past weekend, and another coworker hears you say this, and they look at you, and they're like, there's no way. I know you way too well. There's no way that you actually got up this morning on Sunday morning, and you went to church at Faith in Troy. That did not happen. And so you look at them, and you say, yes, I did. And they look at you, and they say, okay, prove it. And you say, no problem, um, because when I went to church, right, I got, I got a bulletin. I can prove that I was there. I got a bulletin. In fact, not only did I get a bulletin, I actually went to the bookstore after the service, and I bought a CD. So I can really prove, I can doubly prove that I was there at church this past weekend. And they look at you and say, that doesn't prove anything. You, you could have gotten those things from anybody. You could have stolen them. You could have found those things lying on the ground and just picked them up. see anytime we talk, 're talking about something that happened in the va- in the past you can 't prove anything. The only things that you can prove are things that you can observe and repeat in science. We deal with things that are uh, are observational and repeatable right that 's what the scientific method is all about, but you cannot observe the past and you cannot repeat the past in the present in fact you can't even use science to prove that George Washington or Abraham Lincoln were past presidents of the United States of America. Why? Because their presidencies are not observable and repeatable, right? So you can't use uh, the scientific method to prove any historical event. Instead, what you have to do is you have to use a more evidentiary method like you would actually find in a court of law. The second thing that we have to keep in mind as we begin to weigh this evidence is that the, the question that we're asking is always, what is the most probable explanation for the evidence that we have? Not what is a possible explanation, right? Because there are all kinds of possible explanations. It's possible that you did, in fact, kind of sneak into church and steal a CD from the bookstore. It's possible that you did just grab a bulletin off the ground outside of your office before you walked in, but it's much more probable that you just simply came to church this past weekend at at faith. That's why, again, in the legal system, you always hear the phrase probable cause, not possible cause, because there are endless possibilities. But what we're interested in when we consider evidence is what is the most probable cause for the evidence that we actually have. So what we're going to see is that the most probable cause, the most probable reason for these four books, right? Because there's there's countless possible reasons, aren't there, that f- four men would have written four very similar accounts of the life of the same person? all within the span of, of the same three-year period of time. I'm right, there's all kinds of possible reasons why that could have happened. But the most probable reason is that just because this is what happened. And so these four guys actually wrote it down. Now, when you actually go looking for the evidence of things that happened pertaining to Jesus' death and his resurrection, what we find are actual accounts like we're going to read out of Matthew chapter 28. Open up your Bibles. On page 1,550, you will find Matthew chapter 28 in the Bibles in front of you. We're going to begin reading at verse 8. And I'm going to read this, and I want you to, I want you to listen again. Listen, like we said on Easter, listen for some of the details that are in this, in this event. Verse 8 begins like this. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell Jesus' disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and then worshiped him. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city, and they reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Verse 12. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say to his disciples that his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. Now, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Verse 16, then the eleven disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded to you, and surely I am with you Always to the very end of the age. Now, that account was actually written by Matthew, who is one of Jesus' twelve disciples. And when we actually listen to what it is that Matthew is telling us, we find a few very, very important details. For example, in verse 16, Matthew actually tells us who specifically was present when it was that Jesus actually appeared to them. And we find out it wasn't just one or two people who say that they saw the resurrected Jesus. And then secondly, we also discover in, in verse 12 that Matthew tells us how the counter story to this event actually took place. Which, although possible certainly does not seem very probable because right if the guards were asleep how could they have known who it was that came and stole the body right if the guards were asleep I mean are we really to believe that a group of men um, were somehow able to roll away a massive stone in front of a tomb and then carry out the corpse of Jesus without making a single sound or waking anybody up really If the guards did in fact know that the disciples were the ones who stole the body, why didn't one of the guards just simply raise the alarm as the event was happening and stop them from doing what it is that they were doing? Is it possible that the story that we read in verse 12 is true? Again, anything is possible, but it's much more probable that it's actually exactly what Matthew tells us, which is just a cover for the events that actually happened. Now, What you and I, what we think of and what we refer to and what we call the Bible is really uh, nothing more than a collection of ancient manuscripts. In fact, all of history, all of ancient history comes from ancient manuscripts such as these and so a very important question that we have to ask is how do you know whether or not an ancient manuscript is actually trustworthy how do you know you can actually trust what a manuscript says and scholars do that um, by asking a couple of questions the first thing they do is they physically look at these manuscripts these actual manuscripts they date them and they figure out where exactly they're distributed or where they were found And then secondly, they ask the question, who wrote this manuscript? And they find out everything they can possibly find out about who the author of that manuscript was. And they ask questions like, is this person a reliable person? Does this person have any reason to write what they wrote? Were they being paid, perhaps, to make things sound a certain way? Or was there, there a reason that they needed to, to slant or to skew the events to make them sound uh, sound maybe better than they, they were? And, and, and so what happens when we actually evaluate the manuscripts of the New Testament using that kind of criteria? What is it that we figure out? How do they stack up? with other ancient manuscripts that are from this exact same period and time in history. Because, see, often what you and I are led to believe is that the manuscripts that make up the Bible are somehow inferior to other ancient manuscripts that we have. But is that actually true? When you were in high school, when you were in college, at some point in your life, you had a class in world history, and you probably got a book very much like this one at some point in your educational career. Um, This is, in fact, a current world history textbook. And what historians do is they actually read all kinds of these ancient manuscripts, they, they take the information, they compile it together, and then they come up with the narratives that you and I read in books like this. This is a narrative about Julius Caesar, and it tells us this, that in 60 BC, a military leader named Julius Caesar joined forces with a man named Crassus, who was a wealthy Roman, and another man named Pompey, who was a popular general, with their help. Caesar was elected consul in 59 BC. For the next 10 years, these men dominated Rome. Caesar was a strong leader and a genius at military strategy, and following tradition, he served only one year as consul, and then he appointed himself as governor of Gaul. Now, Gaul is the area now known as France. From 58 to 50 BC, Caesar led his legions on a grueling but successful campaign to conquer all of Gaul. Because he shared, because Caesar shared fully in the hardships of war, he won his men's loyalty and devotion. Now, when you read stuff like that when you were in high school or when you were in college, you probably didn't stop and ask your teacher, okay, how do we know that that's actually true, right? How, how do we know that Caesar's men really were devoted to him? How do we really know that Caesar was actually a military genius? How do we know that he led an eight-year-long, grueling but successful military campaign? Well, well the way that we know that is by consulting ancient manuscripts. And when it comes to the history of of Rome, when it comes to ancient Roman history, um, everybody quotes one particular person. In fact, this book tells us which manuscripts they actually got their information from. And it was this guy right up here, a guy by the name Of Tacitus. Now, Tacitus lived from 55 to 117 AD, and he writes everything about Roman history that happens prior to 100 AD. In fact, Tacitus actually wrote 30 volumes of Roman history, which were divided up into two groups of 15. Now, unfortunately, more than half of his work has been lost forever, and we don't have any surviving copies anywhere. But we do have, you know, approximately half of what it is that he wrote. And again, those, those, those books that we have left that he wrote, um, the books that we have, we have two copies. And those two copies date to 900 AD and 1100 AD. And so, again, that, that means that the two copies that we have were made 800 and 1,000 years after the events that they record actually took place. But nobody argues that it's accurate history, do they? I mean, it's right here, specifically quoted in this world history textbook, written by one person, but nobody disputes that it's accurate history. Now, again, think about this for a second. You would expect the history of Rome to be something that would survive, wouldn't you? Right? I mean, the the Roman Empire was one of the most powerful empires, one of the largest empires that has ever existed on the face of the earth. We know that Roman emperors actually paid historians to write down their personal histories. We know that they actually had buildings built to store those documents in. So you would expect at least some of that history to, to survive. But even with all of that, right? even with all the power and the might of Rome, right? even with all of that the only thing that we have are two copies of a manuscript that were written in 900 A.D., and 1100 A.D. That's all that survived from the history of the Roman Empire. So the question is, how in the world is it that we actually have four manuscripts written about a poor Jewish carpenter, a man who was not powerful, was not wealthy, did not have any children, and did not write a single book? How is it that these books survived? How is it that we have more information about this man Jesus than we do about the Roman emperors who actually lived during the same period of time? Because that's actually true. We have more information about Jesus than the Roman emperors who lived when Jesus did. Why would so much time and attention be given, not to the entire life of Jesus, but to just three years of his life? See, we know that Roman historians would write histories that spanned decades of an emperor's rule. They would write about these emperor's children, about their families, about the legacies that they had, about their victories in in the military, and yet these four men gave incredible detail to just three years of the life of a poor Jewish carpenter, and not only has their work survived, but it's actually been preserved to the point where, where we actually have more manuscripts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John than we do any other ancient historian in the entire world. In fact, when you, when you look at just the Greek manuscripts that we have to this day of only these four books, you'll find that we have more than 2,100 of them. And when you look at the actual ancient manuscripts that we have for the entire New Testament, you'll find that we have more than 24,000 Of them. And these manuscripts weren't written eight or nine hundred years after the events that they record took place. In fact, in two weeks, Dr. Gary Habermas will be here. Last month, he just announced that a a brand new uh, fragment from the book of Mark was discovered and has been confirmed to have been dated to 90 AD. We have copies of the book of Romans discovered in Rome that date to 55 A.D. We have copies of, we have fragments and and copies of John's gospel that date to 135 A.D. that were found not in Jerusalem, but in Egypt. Now ask yourselves this, what in the world is a copy of John's gospel doing in Egypt in 135 A.D.? Right, that, that's a testimony to how quickly and how broadly these manuscripts were, were, were distributed, right? And, and maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, well, you know, that's, that's actually the real problem. That's the problem. Because there's all the copies. Because the Bible is nothing more than just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. It's filled with errors and contradictions and nobody knows who wrote, wrote what and nobody knows who put the errors in there. and We don't know how anything got there and nobody knows what to trust. That's the problem all The copies. I'm sure you've heard someone say something like that to you before. Well, the good news is this. There are mistakes in the manuscripts that we have. There are even differences that we find when we compare the New Testament manuscripts and we lie them side by side. But see, mistakes and differences are not errors. Let me explain that for a moment. When I was in seminary, one of the things that I was taught how to do is, is a process called textual criticism. And what we do in textual criticism is we actually take an ancient Greek manuscript, we read it in the Greek, and then we compare it side by side with another ancient Greek manuscript, and we figure out which one is actually correct and which one has the mistakes in it or, or not. Now, the truth is that sounds a lot more um, impressive um, and also slightly pretentious, Um, than it actually is. In fact, I'm going to teach you how to do the exact same thing right now. Okay, So look up at the screen. Up on the screen, what you have right there is translated into English um, five different Greek manuscripts and the text that those manuscripts contain. Now, here's my question for you. Do you think by looking at these five manuscripts that you could discover or understand what it is that the original manuscript actually said right Of course you can that's not rocket science at all actually is it it's pretty it's pretty easy right see these are all mistakes in syntax right these are, this is these are not errors these are mistakes in syntax see an error would be that one manuscript said that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and another manuscript said that Jesus Christ is not the Savior of the world. That would be an error. These are the type of mistakes that we find when we actually look at the New Testament manuscripts. And the differences? Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you're using one of those brown Bibles, it's on page 1789. Now, on the bottom of that page, 1789 you will notice a footnote about this particular verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 38. What you see at the bottom of that page is a little lowercase a with the number 38 next to it. And what that footnote is telling you is that in the 24,000 manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, we find 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 38, written in two different ways. The majority of the manuscripts actually have it written, just like you would read in the text. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. But some of those manuscripts have it written, as we find at the bottom. If he is ignorant of this, then let him ignorant. Now, if you actually take the time to read the verses immediately preceding that verse with both of those two possible renderings, what you discover is that the renderings make absolutely no difference whatsoever to the meaning of the text. So, once again, is there a difference? Absolutely. Is that difference an error? No. And the Bible that you already have has a complete list of every single one of the differences that are found in those 24,000 New Testament manuscripts. That's what all the footnotes that you always see, that's what those are all about. The, the truth is, we actually have copies of all four of these Gospels, exactly like the ones that you have in your Bibles today that date to 250 A.D., and they are exactly the same as the, the copies that you have in your Bibles today. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, so Joe, if this is all, you know, as obvious as you say it is, right? If this is all true if this is all as as obvious and as clear-cut as you say it is then, then what's the problem here why don't people actually you know quote these these books as history why don't we read in our textbooks you know um, Luke wrote and and Tacitus wrote why, why don't we read you know Tacitus wrote and, and and Mark wrote why don't we why don't we see that what's the problem here the problem is this and I don't Mean to sound judgmental when I say this, so please understand that. The problem is that it's very, very easy for you and I, as 21st century Americans, right? It's very easy for us to actually be biased against the the, the supernatural. So, so let me tell you what I mean by that. It would be like saying, okay, before I before I look before I look at these books, I just want I just want you to know. I I do not believe in the supernatural. Now, that doesn't mean I don't believe in God. I'm just telling you, I just don't believe that God actually does supernatural things, right? I don't believe he walks on water. I don't believe he multiplies loaves of bread and fish. Um, And I certainly don't believe that God actually came to earth as a man. Uh, I I just don't believe in the supernatural. That's just kind of where I stand. I just want you to know that. But I will, okay, I will look at the evidence. Uh supernatural I I can't I can't use this and this one yep Matthew supernatural is in there too what about Luke maybe Luke no it's in Luke also can't use that one Uh, maybe John what about John Oh no John it's in all four of those books I mean the supernatural is in all of them I can't I can't use any of these books see the problem is there's a problem the problem is there's a very real fallacy right, that kind of goes along with, with, with that kind of thinking. The, the problem is this, it is not logical. It, it is it is actually foolish. To, to It doesn't make any sense academically to try to judge the authenticity of an ancient manuscript by my personal 21st century experience, does it? And it would be no different than, than me saying, "Okay, listen, because I have never seen the supernatural, because my friends have never seen the supernatural, because I live in a world where I do not see supernatural things. Therefore I have concluded that supernatural things cannot happen and never have happened. Now go ahead, show me the evidence. right Now, I understand emotionally why it might be difficult to believe something when we don't understand how that happened. But the truth is that's not a problem with these books, right? The truth is that's actually a problem. With our understanding. It would be no different than this. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if I were to stand up here and look at all of you and tell you, I do not believe that slavery or racism has ever existed in this country. Imagine that I said that to you. Now, if I said that to you, there's probably all kinds of things you'd like to say back to me, but just go with me for a moment. Let's say I said that to you, and you respond and you tell me, well, listen, you know, we have stories, we have, we have testimonies. In fact, we have entire museums that have been built to, to document that. And I say, well, I don't care. I don't care about any of that stuff. I just don't believe that slavery and, and racism um, have, have ever existed in this country. Because, see, for slavery and racism to have existed in our country, that that would mean that, that would mean that there would have to be a category of hatred, and a category of evil, and a category of insanity that is so deep and so pervasive that it not only affected one single person, but it actually affected an entire nation of people for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I just don't believe that that kind of evil actually exists. And the reason why I don't believe it exists is because, listen, I've never felt that way towards another group of people. And my friends, they've never felt that way towards another group of people. And I've never seen that kind of hatred or evil before. And so therefore, I've concluded that it has never existed before. See, if I were to say that to you, you know what you would tell me? You would tell me, I don't care about your personal experience, right? I don't care about what it is that you've seen or your friends have seen. What in the world does your personal experience have to do with history. The point, right? The, the point, the point is this as we kind of begin to wrap this up together, as we talk about these four books, right? The, the point is simply this listen, as we begin today to consider the evidence right? As we we move throughout this series and we talk about the evidence that's found in in these books over these next several weeks together, as you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at what it is that they say to us, and again, if you're here today and you are, are, you know, you're visiting with us or you're not a follower of Jesus, then I I get it. Of course, right? Of course. Chances are you probably came here today and you are biased against the supernatural which of course you would be because you live in a world where you don't see supernatural things i get it more than you more than you realize all i would say to you is simply this just be careful be careful that you do not fall into the trap of taking your own experience and then at what it is you've seen or haven't seen right and then imposing that on these books and saying that these books can't possibly be true just simply because of your own personal experience that's not academic that that's not scientific that's nothing more than imposing your own experience on history which in fact is I think part of the reason why God in his wisdom didn't just give us Matthew he didn't just give us Mark. He didn't just give us Luke or even just John. But instead, God did everything that he possibly could in a day in an age where there were no pictures. There was no video. There, there wasn't even a printing press. God did everything that he possibly could to accurately record and then provide for us these amazing accounts of history of what actually happened. And that should give every single one of us just a little bit of a reason to pause. Because, see, if if what these books say happened really did happen, if Jesus really said what these books claim that he said, then just because maybe I haven't ever seen God do anything, that doesn't mean that God actually has never done anything. And maybe because I just have never seen a miracle, that doesn't mean that God has never actually done a miracle. And so maybe what it is that I need to do today is to just consider or perhaps reconsider the evidence. Because, see, in the very same way that these books, the message of these books reveal a messenger... The message of these books is that you, in fact, have a Savior. A Savior who has stepped out of history and who actually wants to step into your life personally today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you so much for preserving and for giving to us for providing for us these, uh, these amazing ancient manuscripts. Um, Father, these, these books that tell us about who you are, they tell us about who your son is, and they most importantly tell us about what it is that Jesus has done for each of us personally. And Father, my prayer for us as a, as a people and as a church, as we move through this series together, is that your Holy Spirit would help us to weigh the evidence, help us to maybe put our biases to the side, uh, and, and for us to see clearly where it is that evidence leads, even if, especially if, especially if it kind of leads and points in a direction maybe that we don't fully understand. Father, I ask that in these next few moments, as we take some time to personally speak to you and pray to you personally and silently, um, that you would hear us just as your son Jesus has promised you would as we confess our sin to you. The good news of the gospel is that while every single one of us, well, you and I, well, we were still sinners— It was in that moment that our Heavenly Father sends Jesus Christ not only into our world, but also into each one of our lives personally, that we would not perish, but rather have eternal life. And so the good news of the gospel is that your sin, it is truly forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.